If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 21. Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin by reading in verse 21. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work, illumining our minds to understand what it is you've revealed about yourself, our triune Lord, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray that we would, in some way, be able to wrap our minds around the biblical revelation that you've given and be satisfied with that and and not press into trying to make sense of you beyond what your word has revealed, but to worship you for who you are, our triune Lord who is revealed in Scripture and yet incomprehensible to us at the same time. We pray to understand this and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our fourth sermon on the Trinity as I've been trying to walk through the various biblical authors and what they believe about our Lord, what they confess, testify, reveal about who our Lord is. In the last several weeks, I have been pressing us to think, to contemplate, to study, to look long at our triune Lord. It's not something we enjoy doing in evangelicalism today, unfortunately, that, that being me too, We immediately want to go to application and what do I do rather than spend time thinking about the Lord, contemplating him, studying him, looking long at him. What's interesting is what we do in application is not what's central to the Christian life. Even in Jesus' teaching, he says straight out, this is eternal life. What is? Knowing the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. To know the Lord is eternal life. My goal in this series is the worship of the one true God revealed in the scriptures whom you must know for eternal life. You must know him. And I am contending, I want you to hear this because it's unusual for you probably to hear it. It's unusual for me to say it. I'm contending that the whole Christian life, hear that? How much of your Christian life? The whole Christian life consists in knowing and contemplating our triune Lord. 
I'm, I'm contending the entire Christian life consists in knowing and contemplating our triune Lord. And I'm not alone in saying this. Listen to what a leader in the Dutch Reformation, Protestant Reformation, the 17th century. If you guys don't know what the Dutch are, then go take a geography class. But the Dutch part of the Protestant Reformation, the 17th century, a guy with a great name, I don't hear much, Wilhelmus Abrakel, right? Listen to what he said about contemplating the Trinity and the Christian life. This is, this is from the 17th century. Here's what he said. The entire spiritual life of a Christian consists in being exercised concerning this mystery, the mystery of the Trinity. A godly person will never deny this mystery, even though, listen, even though all believers do not perceive this mystery with equal clarity. I want you to hear what he said. The entire spiritual life of a Christian consists in being exercised, contemplating this mystery. What mystery? That our Lord is triune. Contemplating him. Further, he says, not all believers will perceive this mystery with equal clarity. And I think that's true. I think that's fair. It is not my expectation that at the end of this series, you all will comprehend the Trinity with the same clarity that I do. I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because I'm spending 40 hours a week at least studying the doctrine of Trinity. Most of you aren't. Right? I understand that. You have jobs that prevent that. And even then, as I'm spending all this time studying the Trinity, my understanding of the Trinity is still that of a fallen and finite creature. And even as a fallen finite creature, my understanding is inferior to some of the other fallen and finite creatures around. My understanding of the Trinity is inferior to Augustine. He's dead now. Aquinas. I mean, you look at a good list. Athanasius. I can start listing people alive today, too. Michael Reeves, Carl Truman. Um, I'll just, you know, go through the list of theologians. My understanding is still inferior to other fallen and finite creatures. That's my point. As much time as I'm putting in. No matter how much I study the idea that God is one being in three persons, three persons in one being, equal in power and glory, I am still, no matter how much I studied, I am still left dumbfounded. And I expect that you are as well. So after the last three weeks, if you're thinking, I am dumbfounded by what he's saying, good. I am dumbfounded by what I'm saying as well. So I'm communicating clearly. My hope in this series is not that I nor anyone else would fully comprehend that our Lord is three in one and one in three. My hope is that you'd really comprehend two truths. One, the Bible has revealed our Lord to be triune. And two, our triune Lord is incomprehensible. It is good if you can say, if you could say something like this. Well, I can wrap my mind around the proposition that God reveals himself to be three in one, one in three. But while I can understand that that proposition is true, God reveals himself that way, I can't possibly comprehend all that that proposition means. That's exactly the point we must come to. I, I quoted Wilhelmus Albrockel, so let me quote him again. Listen to what he said. Would you, insignificant ant, not like ant like I have an ant and I'm the niece or nephew, right? But ant like, you know, the ants that invade your kitchen in the summer, right? Would you, insignificant ant, 
comprehend the incomprehensible God. Now here's his prescription because he knows you can't. Believe what you cannot comprehend simply because God declares it to be so and worship the incomprehensible. Did you hear that? that? That's my goal in my series, that you would believe what you cannot comprehend, namely our triune Lord, simply because God declares it to be so in his word and that you would worship the incomprehensible. My goal is that you would abandon rationalism, which attempts to define God within the limits of the human mind. Because I can't work out how he can be one God in three persons, I'm going to lessen one of the persons, or I'm going to divide God up into three beings. You guys follow how that happens? Because I can't wrap my mind around how one being can be equally, in power and glory, three persons. My mind can't wrap myself around it, so because my mind is limited, I'm going to rationalistically start to do away with that doctrine. I want to defeat that in your minds, and I also want to defeat mysticism, which is the other side of the rationalist coin. Mysticism, which admits that God is mystery, but then it looks to my personal experience to try to relate to him. So I have a dream or some thoughts about what God must be like. And so I write a book, and it becomes a movie. And I tell you the triune Lord, the Father is a black woman, and the Son is this. And that was a book that became a movie that Christians I heard from based their understanding of God on. Called The Shack. You guys heard of it? That's what mysticism brings you. Rationalism brings you into the cults whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or what have you, you move away from one God and three being, three persons, sorry, and toward one God or three beings or lessening one of them, et cetera, et cetera. You, this is what you move into if you go into rationalism. If you go into mysticism, you end up with all kinds of bizarre things as well. I want you to look to Scripture to define the mystery of the Trinity and to go no further. I want you to know that there in the Bible... God reveals that he is our triune Lord and that he is incomprehensible and that we worship him as he's revealed in the Bible. So as we consider our triune Lord this morning, we turn to the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We turn there as we consider him. And I told you I wanted to show you that all the apostles and authors of the New Testament confess our triune Lord. So we went through Matthew's work and Mark's work, and now we're going to look at Luke. The reason we're taking Luke and Acts together, we're not going to teach the whole book of Luke and Acts, don't worry. If you know anything, you know I already preached like 116 sermons on Luke or something, and I'm 60-something into Acts. So if you want to go through the whole books, go, go download those. I'm not doing that this morning. What I want to do, though, is look at these two books together because Luke wrote both of them. And as we look at Luke, I want you to hear that I've been trying to drive home that every author of the New Testament believes in the Trinity. We have one God. God is one Lord. God is one essence. God is one substance. In other words, we are fully embracing the monotheism of the Old Testament. We confess, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Further, this one God is eternally three persons, equal in power and glory. The Father is God, the Son is God, 
The Holy Spirit is God, yet we have one God. And the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, nor the Holy Spirit the Father or the Son. They are three distinct persons in one God, yet one God. Now the Old Testament clearly reveals to us this one God, does it not? And in the New Testament, the New Testament authors are relying upon the Old Testament revelation of this one God. They're assuming it, they're believing it, and sometimes they're directly confessing it. But in the New Testament, this one God is clearly revealed to be three co-equal and co-eternal persons. He is three in one in the Old Testament, but he is not clearly revealed as such until the coming of the Son and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus says he reveals all this. Look at Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, this is an hour in which he was teaching his disciples, the 72 had come back, he was He was teaching them. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Here is the Son rejoicing in the person of the Holy Spirit. Here you have two persons. They're distinct. Rejoiced in the person of the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Now you have a third person, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now catch this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus is claiming divinity here. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, the Son is the one now revealing the Father. The Father reveals the Son. The Son reveals the Father, etc. And Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit as this is all happening. Now, I dealt with this passage in Matthew, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. What I want to focus on is this. The Son reveals the Father, and he does that by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, catch this, those two persons, the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, are those who clearly reveal what was only partially revealed in the Old Testament, namely that our one God is triune. That's what... Uh, theologians would use a technical word, adumbrated in the Old Testament. It's sounded forth in the Old Testament in some way that God is one in three, but it isn't clearly revealed there. It's partially revealed in some ways, but it isn't until the Son comes in his incarnation and the Spirit comes, the Spirit comes at Pentecost that God is clearly revealed. In the Son's mission of being sent from the Father to redeem, and in this Holy Spirit's mission and being sent by the Father and the Son to sanctify, in those two missions, we see the revelation of our triune Lord. And as we look at the missions of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the name of God is revealed by them. The name of God always tells us who he is and what he is, doesn't it? And what I'm saying is that Yahweh's name is revealed to be the Father, the Son, and and the Holy Spirit, and is revealed as such in the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is what is sounded forth in the baptism. We baptize, Jesus says, in the name, singular, the name of who? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's important because God's works throughout the Bible tell you something about who he is. His works reveal him to some degree, don't they? When he redeems, when he creates, when he does, they reveal him to a degree. But God is greater than his works. Did you hear what I said? 
God is greater than his works. Just like an artist is greater than his art. So the Lord is greater than his works. I mean, you can learn something about an artist by looking at the artist's art, can't you? You can learn something about them. But you can't know the artist until you know his name. And the name of God tells us his character, his nature, his being, and his name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, as we see this revelation of God in Scripture, we learn something about who he is in himself. Something. Not a lot about who he is in himself, but something. But we must be careful not to read our creaturely existence. Please hear this. We have to be careful not to read our creaturely existence and experience back into God. Did you catch that? God is revealed as the Father and the Son. Now, how could I read my creaturely existence and experience back into God? Well, I'm a father, and I have a son, and I've been a son. And what I could do is I could take my creaturely experience as a father and a son, and then I could take that and define God that way because he uses that kind of language to help explain himself or reveal himself to me. And I could take my creaturely experience and toss that on the creator. You guys follow me on that? And that is not what we should be doing. God is using language in scripture that accommodates me as a creature, but not language that makes him like me as a creature. So I must only use the biblical revelation of what it means that he is the Father and the Son to define my understanding of him. And where he does not speak, I must be silent. We have, we have to, this is an important point. I keep coming back to it over and over and over again. Our tendency as human beings is to see scriptural language defining God, describing God, and miss the fact that he's accommodating himself to us. And take that human creaturely language and then take our own human creaturely existence and experience and read all that back into God and make him one of us. That is a terrible mistake. He is revealing himself to us. He wants us to know him. But listen, we can only define him according to the parameters that he sets. We cannot read our creaturely existence back into him. He is the creator, not the creature. And where he does not speak about himself, we have to be silent about him. So what I'm trying to drive you to is that the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit reveal the name of our triune Lord and are related to God himself. So I want to cover three topics briefly. One, the mission of the Son, okay, in Luke. Two, the mission of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And three, how their missions relate to their persons. You hear that? The mission of the Son, the mission of the Holy Spirit, and the third thing is how their missions relate to their person. So let's look first at the mission of the Son. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke 1 and verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
that word favored is the Lord has shown grace to her. Not that she's full of grace, but that grace has been shown to her. She isn't the dispenser of grace here. She's the receiver of grace. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, as would you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God has been gracious to you, Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son, for this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I, I don't have time to, to exposit this whole text. I just want to consider two questions. Two questions here in this text. As we look at the mission of the Son. That's what we're looking at, the mission of the Son. And we get the mission of the Son by answering those two questions. Here's the first one. Who is this Son of Mary? Who is the Son of Mary? That's the first question. And second, the second question is, what has this Son of Mary come to do? Who is this son of Mary, and, and what has this son of Mary come to do? So let's look first at who he is. Verse 31. And to some degree, who he is and what he's come to do come together. And behold, he says to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus means Yahweh, the Lord, saves. We're learning something about who he is and what he's come to do just in the very naming of him. He is named the Lord saves. Now look as it goes on to name him even more. He will be great. He will be great. What's interesting is that there's no, there's no qualification to that. He's great. That's all you hear. He'll be great. It's a way of saying he's great. Now, I know. It's deep stuff right there. But look, the word great is used before this. Look at, look, contrast with chapter 1 and verse 15 with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. You hear the qualification? He's going to be great before the Lord. He is not himself the Lord. He is but a man. He is a prophet of the Lord. Come before the Christ as the forerunner. He'll be great before the Lord, but as you go on and the birth of Jesus is going to be announced, he's just going to be plain old great because he is the Lord. No qualification. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called, will be called, this is his name, the Son of the Most High. Most High is a, is a circumlocution it's, well, that's probably not a helpful word. It's a way of saying something, right? It's a circumlocution or a way of saying God. 
Most High is a way of naming God. God has named the Most High in multiple Psalms. He's named the Most High in Daniel, um, in the book of Daniel, in multiple locations, um, et cetera, et cetera. He is referred to the Old Testament God, Yahweh, as the Most High. So this, this Jesus who's going to be born to Mary, whose name is Yahweh Saves, whose great and unqualified sense is the Son of the Most High. Now look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 76 as it talks about John the Baptist again. Here's Zechariah prophesying about his son, John the Baptist, and he says, And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Hear that? John the Baptist is the prophet of the Most High, who's going before who? The Lord to prepare whose way? The Lord's way. Jesus is the Lord who's coming, whom John the Baptist is preparing the way for, and he's not the prophet of the Most High or the Lord. He is the Son of the Most High. He is himself divine. Look at verse 32 again. And the Lord God, that's differentiating him from the Son. Here we're speaking largely of the Father. Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. In other words, he's going to be this Davidic king. This is promised in 2 Samuel 7 that David will have a son who sits on his throne forever. So he's the son of Mary. He's the son of David, which means he's a man. He's a Messiah. He is the promised Davidic king, and yet he is also great, the son of the Most High, the one who's came, come to save. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, verse 33, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, he's ushering in the kingdom of God, which goes on forever. He is an eternal king. Again, speaking to his divinity. And verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? That's a very good question. And the angel answered her, verse 35. Notice this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That language is picked up in Acts 1.8. But wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the earth. Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Mary. That language is echoing back to Genesis 1.2. Think of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was formless and void, Right? And the Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep. Here the Holy Spirit is, if you will, hovering over the womb of Mary, overshadowing her, coming upon her. And it says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit there being the power of the Most High. He himself is God and he is acting will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. And so the Son is set apart. This child of Mary is set apart as holy, anointed to do the work for which God has sent him. He will be called holy. And then look at this last title, the Son of God, in case you weren't following. Jesus is the God-man, he's the eternal Son of God, and the human Son of Mary. He is the Messiah. 
And what has this son of Mary come to do? That's the second question. What's he come to do? He's been sent by the Father. That's why I say his mission as the son. To talk about mission is to talk about sending. The Father is not sent on any missions. He's the sender. The Son has a mission and the Spirit has a mission. The Father has no mission. He's the one who sends the Son and the Spirit on missions. So the Son's mission, he's being sent for what reason? By the Father to redeem Israel, to save, to be the Messiah and King forever. He is himself God, yet he is given by the Lord God to save us and to redeem us. But do we ever see Jesus reveal the Lord God as his father in Luke? You can say, well, well, father is implicit. It's obviously implicit in that he's called the son. To be a son means you have a... Thank you. I know you're there. You're not charismatic and you don't shout and say amen. <laughs> but that was, a, that was hopefully a gimme. To be the son means you have a father. Good. Okay. All right, so... That's implicit, but is there anything explicit where Jesus reveals the Father to be the Father? Look at Luke 9.26. 9.26. You could say, well, it's in the baptism. A voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. But, but again, the word Father isn't there. I think it's clearly implicit there. But look at Luke 9.26 just to make sure that, that Luke is actually teaching this, and it's not just me reading it into the text. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me... And of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's coming in the glory of the Father. Look at Luke chapter 11 and verse 2. Luke chapter 11 and verse 2. I've already, by the way, shown you in chapter 10 that he is thanking the Father Lord of heaven and earth. So look at Luke 11 and verse 2. And he said to them, he's speaking to his disciples, Jesus, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Address him as the Father. Look at Luke chapter 22. Chapter 22 and verse I, in fact, I want to go back to verse 28. Jesus is speaking here to the disciples about who will be the greatest. This is a, a text I'll be coming back to in a few weeks, several weeks. But listen to this. Verse 28. You are those who stayed with me in my trials. Speak, Jesus speaking to the disciples. And I assign to you. That's that word in the New Testament from which we get covenant. I covenant to you. What? As my Father covenanted to me a kingdom. See, the Father has covenanted to the Son a kingdom. And he's covenanting that kingdom to us, to his followers, his disciples. There he addresses him as my Father. Look at verse 20, chapter 22, verse 42. As Jesus is praying in the garden Gethsemane, he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Never, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here's the son praying to the father, two distinct persons, one being. Chapter, Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Chapter 23 and verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Luke 23 and verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, this is at the cross, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So the eternal Son of God is sent by the eternal Father. That's his self-understanding. And he is sent to redeem his people. Do you hear that? The Son comes to redeem. Redeem his people and to rule the kingdom of God that the Father has eternally covenanted to him. And the Holy Spirit is also involved in all this. We've seen him involved in all of this. From the incarnation, he's involved in all of this. So let's consider the Holy Spirit's mission. So that's the second one. That was the mission of the Son. Now let's look at the mission of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 1.8. Keep your hand in Luke because we'll come back. But look at Acts 1.8. We'll look at the mission of the Holy Spirit briefly. You know the scene. Jesus has resurrected. He has instructed his disciples for over 40 days about the kingdom of God. And he has told them that not many days from now they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's whom he comes to baptize with. They ask some questions. He begins to answer those questions. And part of that answer, verse 8, I don't have time to unwind all that. Part of that answer, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, the Holy Spirit was going to come upon Mary. The, the power of God was going to be coming upon Mary at the incarnation. And now the Holy Spirit is going to come with power upon you. Who's you? That's the apostles. And you will be my witnesses when he comes upon you. What are you going to do when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? What's he empowering you to do? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit is coming, and he will empower the apostles to witness to Jesus, to the Son. Now this empowerment is not simply giving them boldness or gifting them to preach, though he does give them boldness. He does gift them to preach. This empowerment is taking that preached word and applying it to the hearts of men. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. That's what the word spirit means. He's the breath of God who carries God's word into the hearts of men. When you speak and words come out, it's the breath that carries those. He is, if you will, the effectual power of God here. He will sanctify God's people by the truth. Thy word is truth. When Jesus is speaking to the Father and he's praying, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Who is the one who inspires thy word? Carries it in the hearts of men and then sanctifies people by it. The Holy Spirit. Now I'll spend more time on that, on the Holy Spirit and his word, work in sanctification when I get to the Gospel of John and to the epistles of Paul, um, which I'll try to do in one sermon. But, good luck, right? It's going to be a rough week for me. <laughs> But I want you to see that the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are breathing him out. The Holy Spirit is coming to sanctify God's people. That's his mission. He's coming to be a witness to Jesus, God's Son, the Lord and the Savior. He comes to continue the work of the Son through the apostles and the church. That's what Luke means in Acts 1.1. In the first book, 
That's Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Oh, Theophilus, that's the guy he's writing to. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, telling you that Jesus is continuing to do and teach by the power of the Holy Spirit through his apostles or his church. The Holy Spirit was involved in sanctifying the Son, in empowering the Son in his mission, and we see the Holy Spirit involved at the incarnation and throughout Jesus' ministry, don't we? He leads Jesus. He empowers Jesus. And the Father promises to give that same Holy Spirit to give him to us. And John the Baptist tells us that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is continually described as sent by the Father and by the Son for the purpose of applying Christ and his work to Christ's people, thus sanctifying them. Look at Luke 11.13. You can see that in Luke 11.13 just briefly. Luke chapter 11 and verse 13 If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? Look at Luke 24. Luke 24. So there's the Father giving the Holy Spirit. Now look at Luke 24 and verse 49. Jesus speaking to the disciples, telling them after his resurrection, there'll be witnesses of him or to him. He says, and behold, I am sending. Now catch this. Who's sending the Holy Spirit here? I'm sending him. But notice, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So who promised to give the Holy Spirit? The Father. Who promised to send the Holy Spirit? The Father. Who's giving you or sending the Holy Spirit? The Son. So who's sending the Holy Spirit on mission? The Father and the Son. You follow that? They're both sending him, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In other words, he's going to come and clothe you with power. Now look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You know the Pentecost scene. They're in the upper room, the 120. They're praying, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them like fiery tongues. This mighty rushing wind comes to the room, and like fiery tongues descends upon them. And it says in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the Spirit fills them, and what does he cause them to do? To speak. But he's not causing them to pray in gibberish. He's not just making some manifestation of power to show off. He is the Holy Spirit come on mission, and what's his mission? Look at what they're preaching about or speaking about in these languages. Verse 11, he's listing all these groups who are understanding in verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabians. We hear them telling, in other words, these 120 from the upper room who are now filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're speaking in foreign languages. What are they speaking about? We hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit in his mission sent by the Father and Son fills them up so that they preach the good news to the people who are present. So they walk through God's redemptive works from Genesis at 3.15 all the way through 
this point at which Jesus is resurrected and now poured out his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's mission. To testify to the Son. We'll see that so clearly in John chapters 14 through 16. The Holy Spirit is speaking through these men to proclaim the mighty saving acts of God. The Holy Spirit is not generally interested in being your map quest personally. Do I turn right or left? Hmm. Get, get an app on your phone, right? Okay? The Holy Spirit isn't sitting around trying to help you, you know, shine the light on the one. Okay? Who's the one? Listen, if there is the one, you know, what happens if someone marries the wrong one? Then mathematically, everybody does, right? Because that person marries the wrong one and that person and so on and so forth until you're all married to the wrong one. Let's just move away from this whole kind of thing where we see the Holy Spirit as this sort of weird power that, that kind of comes around to, to ease and answer strange things for us. The Holy Spirit's mission is to preach to us about the Christ. It's to cause us, through the Word, to contemplate the Lord continuously and constantly and worship Him so that we want nothing else but Him in all of our being and in all of our works. That's what He's doing. Let's not minimize Him to some kind of party trick. He's come for this. He is the one given by the Father to usher in the last days, which began when he was poured out, in which the gospel of God's Son will spread to the whole earth and sanctify every tribe and tongue and nation in Christ to the glory of God the Father. The Son is also involved in the giving of the Spirit. Not only the Father pour him out there, but look down at chapter 2 of Acts and verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, the Son, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's appropriate that He would, for the, Son, the Spirit is being poured out as the Spirit of Jesus, as the Spirit of Christ, to testify to Christ. He's also called the Spirit of the Father because he reveals the Father and the Son to you. And he reveals the Father in the Son to you, really. The Father gave the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus to pour out. And the coming of the Spirit is evidence that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Look at verse 36 of Acts 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, you might reply, but, but where does Luke ever say that the Holy Spirit is more than a force or power? The, the implicit nature of him being a person is not enough for me in things like um, Jesus rejoicing in him. So, so where does Luke ever say it explicitly that the Holy Spirit is more than a force or power? We see clearly, explicitly, that he is the power of God. But where does it say that he's more than a force or power? I mean, clearly the Holy Spirit is the effectual and sanctifying power of God working all of this that we see out. But where does Luke ever say he's a person? 
Where does Luke ever say the Holy Spirit's a person? Where does Luke ever say the Holy Spirit is God? So look at Acts chapter 5. There's more than this, but I want to give you an explicit one. The story of Ananias and Sapphira. They lie about how much of their sale, of their property, they're actually turning over to the church. They, they had sold their property. They turned over part of it to the church, held the rest back, but wanted it to appear that they had turned it all over to the church. And they hadn't, so they lied about it. And we read this, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now listen, you can't lie to things or forces. or You, you lie to persons. He's lied to the Holy Spirit, this person. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remains unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? God. So who do you lie to, the Holy Spirit or God? Yes, why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. And here, with Ananias and Sapphira, we see the mission of the Holy Spirit. And you say, how do we see the mission of the Holy Spirit here as he strikes the two of them dead? Because the mission of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son is to sanctify his church. And he sanctifies his church here. He strikes them dead, the whole church stands in fear. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to apply Jesus and his saving work to his church. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons, three persons in one God, and it is in the mission of the Son being sent by the Father to redeem us that we learn that God is the Father and the Son. And it is in the mission of the Spirit being sent by the Father and the Son to sanctify us that we learn that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I want to carry this one more step. This is the third point I said I was going to make. How do the missions of the Son and the Spirit relate to their eternal persons? How do their missions, what they come to do, what they're sent to do, relate to who they are? What do I mean? Let, let me ask it this way. Why is the Son the one who's sent to redeem? I mean, why not, why not the Father? Why, why is the Spirit the one who's sent to sanctify? Why, why not the Son? My contention is that the missions of the Son and the Spirit, which reveal the name of God, demonstrate the appropriateness of the works of each person in our creation and redemption. That's a lot for you to get a hold of, but I'll help you over the next several weeks. We learn in the mission of the Son and the, that the Father loved us and sent his Son for us, don't we? This tells us who he is. He is the Father who is the source of all our spiritual blessings in Christ. This is why Paul will start, burst into praise in Ephesians 1.3 and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is the source of all of our spiritual blessings. The Father is. And that's appropriate to who he is because he is the source of the Son and the Spirit. Now, I don't mean by that he created them. I mean, they eternally come from him. There's a fromness. He gave us the Son and the Spirit in love. 
Further, we learn that the Son is the one who's sent to redeem us. And why it is appropriate that the Father is the one who sends. The Son is our Redeemer. I want you to hear this. We learn the Son was sent on mission to redeem us and adopt us as what? Adopt us as what? Sons of the Father. That's why it's appropriate that the Son is the one who's sent to redeem us. It's why it's appropriate the Father is the one who sends him. The Son is our Redeemer and the one to whom we must be united to be adopted as sons of the Father in him, the Son. Further, the Father and the Son gave us the Holy Spirit as the one who sanctifies us. He is the effectual power of God to bear witness to the Son, to unite us to the Son, to regenerate us or give us new birth, to justify us and glorify us in the Son. He is the breath of God who carries the Word of God into our hearts. He is the one who indwells us and causes us to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. He is the one who causes us to pray the Son's prayer. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians and chapter 4, because this is incredibly important to the mission of the Spirit and the Son. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The Son came to redeem. That's his mission. Now what? To make us sons. To adopt us as sons. Now look what it says. So that we might receive adoption as sons, verse 5. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying what? Crying what the Son cries. Abba, Father. He is the one who causes us to pray the Son's prayer. Abba, Father. It's appropriate that the Holy Spirit do this sanctifying work and not the Father who lovingly sent him to us, nor the Son whom he is applying to us. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son so that every tribe and tongue and nation might know Christ, God's Son, and rejoice in him to the glory of God the Father. Thus we can say that in our creation and redemption, that those are from the Son, or excuse me, from the Father, in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. Both our creation and redemption. From the Father, in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. You'll see that so clearly in John chapter 1 and, frankly, in Colossians 1 and following. And you might think, man, that is a lot to take in. I mean, in my mind, you know, that's about all I got. Yes, it is a lot to take in. But, but let me sum it up. We have one God and three distinct persons equal in power and glory. Luke confesses this. Matthew confesses this. Mark confesses this. And the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit show us that, the God, that God is the Father, the source of all our spiritual blessings, that God is the Son, our Redeemer, that God is the Holy Spirit, our sanctifier in the Son. If all you can get a hold of is that, you're doing really well. But please be patient as you stretch your mind to understand better the Lord's revelation of himself as triune. Let, let me conclude with with Wilhelmus Brockel, in an effort, he, he made a quote that blew me away, in an effort to encourage you to keep thinking, to keep contemplating our triune Lord. If you may entertain appropriate thoughts, make appropriate comments, 
and have appropriate exercises concerning each person of the Trinity, you will experience considerable and consistent progress in godliness. Do you hear that? If you may entertain appropriate thoughts, make appropriate comments, and have appropriate exercises, in other words, contemplation concerning each person of the Trinity, you will experience considerable and consistent progress in godliness. There will be a wondrous illumination concerning the unity of the Godhead as you consider each individual person, and of the Godhead and its Trinity as you contemplate its unity. If so much light and comfort and joy and holiness may be derived from perceiving what is but an obscure glimmer of the Trinity, what will it be? And how will the soul be affected when he may behold God's face in righteousness and awake satisfied with his likeness? Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to contemplate, by your Spirit, help us to contemplate, to think rightly, to exercise our minds rightly about who you are as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. As the Father who loved us, who is the source of all things, our creation and our redemption. Out of the overflow of your love as the Son who was sent to purchase grace for us and covenant to us a kingdom, the one that you've covenanted to him. So that we might be forgiven, counted as righteous in him, united to him and, and adopted as your sons to call you our Father. And as we contemplate the Holy Spirit who was sent to give us life by uniting us to your Son through faith to sanctify us so that the redemption Christ bought for us might be ours. To cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father, to indwell us so that we might have fellowship with you, our triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess this is a great mystery, one that we, we cannot possibly comprehend. And we confess that your word clearly reveals this to us. We pray that we would worship you as your word reveals you to be, and that we would be silent where your word is silent, that you would be exalted in it. In Jesus' name, amen.